going to be turning our attention in a little bit to Galatians chapter 1. We are finishing this morning uh, a section from verse 13 through 24. Uh, we will be in Hebrews 11 for a while, and you are welcome to turn there or just listen. But I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read again Galatians 1, verse 13 through 24, and we will pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. So Galatians 1.13, the epistle to the Galatians, written, of course, by the Apostle Paul, inspired of God. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicily, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He once persecuted us. He who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of faith, which we, which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me." <clears throat> Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time. God, thank you that we can meet together on this Lord's Day to have the freedom to do so publicly and openly. And God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this letter to the Galatians that pronounces freedom in Christ, the freedom that we have all because of Christ, who he is and what he has done. And God, thank you for the warnings against adding anything to the grace of God, to that which you have provided by your grace in the person of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for each person here this morning. I thank you that we can worship you together in unity. And I pray for that unity this morning that we might be built up in the faith through the preaching of your word and through every aspect of the service. But Lord, I also pray for any that may not be born again, God, that by the power of the spirit, God, that you would give life, that you would regenerate that soul unto life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. God, you are Glorious, you are gracious, providing a salvation in full for us. To those who believe, not just to the Jews, but to we Gentiles as well. What a great God you are. Where else can we turn 
who has the words of eternal life only to you. Lord, bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wish to make it to heaven, it will only be by the riches of God's grace based upon the person and work of Christ and received only through faith. But what is saving faith? What does it mean to believe? The New Testament Greek word for faith is pistis, meaning firm persuasion, conviction, belief in the truth, veracity, reality, or faithfulness. The 1689 London Baptist Confession defines faith in the most precise and biblical manner. It says the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And we could say that saving faith actually has three components. The knowledge of the truth, confidence, assurance, conviction, persuasion of the truth. That's the second thing. But then thirdly, commitment to the truth or rest in Christ. You see, you can know the truth and even be persuaded of it and yet die in your sins. For even the demons believe in God and tremble. So there must be a personal commitment to get in the boat with Christ, so to speak to rest in Christ, to carry us to glory, no matter what it might cost you. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Charles Spurgeon wrote, my faith rests not in what I am or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done, and what he is doing for me. So faith is not just believing in God. It's believing God. It's receiving and resting in his son as the promised Messiah, the Mashiach, as our Savior and as our Lord. It's believing and trusting that Christ, because of who he is, the eternal Son of God, the promised deliverer, and because of what he has done, bearing the sins of the elect of all who would believe and being raised from the dead, that he alone has done what was necessary to save my soul and to take me safely home to glory. That's faith. Through faith, we stop seeking to appease God's wrath by our own doing. We stop trying to gain God's acceptance by our good works but we rest in him and him alone. You see, he is our hope. He is our confidence. He is our savior. He is our Lord. And folks, he is enough. Isn't he enough? Folks, the Lord Jesus Christ is enough. His death on the cross is efficacious for all who believe. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see faith in practice. We see the evidence of faith in the men of old. He begins this chapter, this writer whom we do not know for sure. But he writes this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, verse 2, the men of old gained approval. It was through faith that the men 
of old gained approval before God, not by anything that they did, not by their good works, but through faith in the one who had promised in the one who is faithful, while it is never by works, which we have done. We see that in the lives of these men, that faith works, faith obeys, faith perseveres, saving faith always produces fruit. Verse four of that chapter, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel was not accepted because he offered a better sacrifice, but he was accepted, or I should say this, he offered an acceptable or a better sacrifice because he believed God. He was saved through his faith. In verse 5, Enoch pleased God and was taken up to heaven without seeing death. So through faith, Enoch pleased God and was rewarded. By faith, Noah, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Though he had never seen rain, he trusted God's warning that he would judge the world in a global flood and in righteousness. But he would also, God would also deliver him in his household. You see here that faith works. Noah was not saved by preparing the ark, but he was saved by faith, which works. Because he believed God, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Verses 8, 9, and 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. He left his father's house, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in tents in the land of promise. For he was looking forward to something far better, a city whose architect and builder is God. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah, even though past the age to bear children, considered him who had promised faithful. Therefore, through one man, Abraham, though as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. You see, faith obeys even when it does not make sense. Because God is faithful. It looks to God who is faithful, who always keeps his word. Then in verses 13 through 16, we see a a parenthesis, as it were. The writer of Hebrews breaks away from Sarah and Abraham for a moment to further explain faith. And he writes this. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, they were seeking a homeland, not an earthly land. They desired a better homeland. That is, the Bible says, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. Verse 17. Now the writer returns back to Abraham and he says this by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, his dear son, his son of promise for God had promised through Isaac, not Esau, your seed shall be blessed. 
You see, the promises given in Genesis 12 to Abraham were to be fulfilled in Isaac. Abraham believed that even if Isaac died, that God was able to raise him from the dead. He would have to, for God's promises are irrevocable. He knew that God's unconditional promises never fail. He knew that God does not lie, that God always keeps his word. In Numbers 23, Balaam spoke the word of Yahweh to Balak, and he says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not establish it? No. He keeps his word. You see, Abraham knew that God is faithful. The Bible says three different times, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. It was imputed to him. It was placed on his account, righteousness. Verse 20, Hebrews 11, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding things to come. You see, Isaac looked for God to fulfill his promises made to his father, Abraham. Then the writer of Hebrews continues with example after example of saving faith in practice. For instance, Moses, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He forsook pleasure, wealth, and power. And it says choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin it says he regarded the reproach of Christ or the Messiah greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He believed God's promise, even though it meant forsaking all that Egypt had to offer. He was willing to forsake the things of this world for the promises of God. By faith, he left Egypt. By faith, he kept the Passover, shedding the blood of the Passover lamb, placing it on the doorpost and the mantle of the door, and then going in that room as instructed by God, believing God, and as it were, hiding behind the blood of the lamb until that judgment, that death angel passed over. The chapter continues by faith. The children of Israel cross the Red Sea on dry ground. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, Rahab, that Gentile prostitute, welcomed the Jewish spies. And therefore, she did not perish with those who were disobedient. Verse 32 and following. The writer says this. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I recount Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, as well as David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, 
escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong from weaknesses, became mighty in war, put foreign armies, armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release. They chose torture when they could have been released so that they might obtain a better resurrection. You see, they believed and suffered for it. They were willing to suffer because they had faith. And others experienced mockings and floggings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in desolate places and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. We see here that faith perseveres no matter but he continues, they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Saving faith does not expect the ultimate reward in this life. It waits upon God patiently and faithfully on Yahweh who keeps his promises. Paul writing to the believers in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 for as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. You see, all God's promises are faithful in Christ. They are fulfilled in Christ. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, his promises are yes. Jesus Christ is God. Yes. Do you see it? So he is our amen, so that God is glorified through us. In him and him alone, in Christ, in Christ alone are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in him and him alone, our faith, our faith must rest. So through faith in Christ and Christ alone, we receive God's grace and mercy the forgiveness of sins. We are justified, sanctified, glorified in Christ. We receive a complete and perfect salvation, an eternal home with treasures far surpassing anything this world could ever offer. That's why men and women throughout the ages have been willing to die for Christ. But in the epistle to the Galatians, the apostle Paul is writing to believers who were deserting him, Christ, who had called them by the grace of Christ. So Paul was astonished. He is amazed that some are deserting Christ for another gospel that's really not another, but a so-called gospel that leaves sinners in eternal condemnation. The so-called gospel that the Galatians were being led astray by said that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, you must trust in him, but you also must be circumcised and adhere 
to the Mosaic commandments. It wasn't through faith alone. The faith that men gave their lives for and have continued to give their lives for throughout the centuries. Trusting in the grace of God alone. You see, they were adding works to the grace of God. They were essentially saying that Christ is not enough rather than teaching that good works is the fruit of salvation. They were saying that man's works are the root of salvation, that it must be faith plus works. It must be faith plus circumcision plus adherence to the Mosaic covenant. So in chapter one, verses eight and nine, Paul twice announces anathema eternal condemnation on anyone who preaches any other gospel, a so-called good news contrary to the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace in Christ. And then the last time, a couple of weeks ago, we came to verses 13 through 24, where Paul provides undeniable proof that his message was received from God. This is not Paul's message. It wasn't conspired among a few Jewish people, this was God's message. It came by revelation, according to verse 12, by revelation of Jesus Christ. And he provides proof here from his pre-conversion, from his conversion, and from his post-conversion. Last time, we considered Paul's pre-conversion and his conversion experience. Let's just briefly review. First proof from Paul's Pre-conversion life, verses 13 and 14. He writes this, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my father. That was his heart the traditions of his fathers. So it's clear that nothing in Paul's pre-conversion life provided the source of truth, the truth that he is now preaching and had been for at least two years to the Galatians when he established those churches in Galatia on his first missionary journey. journey. Rather, both his conversion and his message were founded upon divine revelation. So Paul here in Galatians 1 was saying that his pre-conversion life was actually diametrically opposed to the message of grace that he now proclaimed. And that nothing in his Jewish life provided the source of truth that he's now preaching. It came by revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God's gospel. This is not man's gospel. This wasn't something that originated with man, that man came up with. This is God's gospel. And it's, it's actually said that way in the book of Romans. You see, the truth Paul now proclaimed came by revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 12. And then we looked at Paul's conversion in verse 15 and 16a. And he writes this. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through the grace, through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. Paul's election, his calling, 
and the revelation of Jesus Christ were the supernatural work of God. This is God at work. This is God working in Paul. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's message of salvation by grace in Christ came by the work of the Spirit, by the power of God, not by the work of man. Not whatsoever. And so we come today to his post-conversion experience. We'll read the verses together and then break them down. Verse 16b. It's unfortunate that the verses were broken uh, or broken down the way they were because 16b actually picks up. It's related, but it's picking up a new thought. This would have probably been a better place for verse 17 to start. He writes, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicily and, I, and was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judah, which are in Christ. But only they kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So let's break this down. So we'll read it again as we're doing this. Paul's post-conversion life was the final proof that he gives here that his message came by revelation of Jesus Christ, that it did not come from a conspiracy. It did not come even from the other apostles that God, it wasn't secondhand information. It was direct communication by God to the apostle Paul. So verse 16b and 17 together, look at it again. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned, returned once more to Damascus. Paul was not taught by flesh and blood. After receiving the revelation, the word means unveiling of Jesus Christ as he neared Damascus that day, he was taught by Christ. He was not taught by the other apostles. He was not taught by any heretical Jews. That was likely something that the Judaizers were telling the Galatians, but that's not the case. And Paul is recounting the history of his life and providing evidence that that's not the case. After spending several days with the disciples who were at Damascus and preaching briefly in the synagogue there, according to Acts chapter 9, Paul did not consult with flesh and blood. He did not get revelation through flesh and blood. It came from God. He did not seek advice or understanding from Ananias or the other Christians in Damascus, nor did he seek clarification of the revelation that he had received. He was taught by God. 
in the wilderness of Arabia. He was taught by the resurrected Christ. You see, the Galatians needed to understand that the gospel was not a heresy devised by a group of Jews, but that God, that the, the, the gospel is the gospel of God and the gospel from God. Notice verse 17, he went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Arabia is that region that stretched east from Damascus and then down to the Sinai Peninsula. Paul, as far as we know, probably only went a short distance. We don't know for sure. But this was the place of Paul's ministry preparation and also where a place where he preached and experienced persecution. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the place where Paul was let down through a window in the city wall to escape being arrested by order of the king of Arabia. And he was saved from that persecution. But it was there that not only did he preach in that area, he's already preaching the gospel of God's grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he there for a period of about three years is being taught by God. Let's continue. Verse 18, 19 and 20. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. So in other words, it wasn't until three years later that I had any contact with Peter and stayed with him 15 days, only 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles ex except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I'm see, this is significant here. Because he says, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. He's providing evidence that this gospel of God's grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the revelation of Jesus Christ, did not come from man. It wasn't a conspiracy. It came by revelation of Jesus Christ. So it was a total of about three years from his conversion until he returned to Jerusalem. During this time, he learned, he meditated, he studied the Old Testament text, and there he was taught by God himself. Not only had he on the Damascus road received a revelation of Jesus Christ, he continued to be taught by God. And once he returned to Jerusalem, he stayed with Cephas, the apostle Peter, for only 15 days. Paul makes this point that he went solely for the purpose of becoming acquainted with Cephas. There's no word here of even for those 15 days being taught by him. He goes to be acquainted with him. Verse 19, I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. This gospel of grace was not a conspiracy devised by a group of Jewish men. Paul had received this gospel by revelation of Jesus Christ. See, that's the point. This gospel of grace comes with the authority of God. It comes from God. Verse 20, then, he says, now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. So here Paul gives the Galatians the greatest possible confidence in his claims by giving them this common Jewish vow, I assure you before God. It's like saying, God is my witness that I am not lying. 
he was swearing before God, so to speak. It was a Jewish vow. And in addition to that, interesting point here made by John MacArthur, he writes this, that statement along with many others, contradicts the claims of liberal interpreters that Paul was sincere and and highly capable leader, but that many of his teachings reflect his personal ideas and preferences. We're seeing more and more of that argument because people do not like what Paul had to say about certain things that relate to a number of things that's going on in our world, such as woke topics. They do not like Paul, such as homosexuality and all kinds of sexual immorality. Paul made things clear, but part of the problem is they don't even understand what Jesus himself said. If they knew that, they wouldn't like Jesus either. They really do not like the Jesus of the Bible. It has one author. Well, uh, that's a side note, but... Paul's argument here was to affirm that he had received his gospel directly from God, not from the other apostles. He only visited two of them for 15 days and then only three years after his conversion. Any claim that he was a secondhand apostle receiving his message from the Jerusalem apostles was categorically and demonstrably false. Verse 21 through 24 will be done. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicily, (coughs) excuse me, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judah, which are in Christ. But only they kept hearing he who once persecuted us now proclaiming the good news of faith, which he once also destroyed. And they were glorifying God because of me. After Paul left Jerusalem, he went into the regions of Syria and Sicily, which included his hometown of Tarsus. We can read about that in Acts chapter 9, verse 11 and verse verse 30. But during the stay of several years in those regions, Paul preached. While the other apostles, many Christians, those in Judea, were separated. They had no influence on him. And by the way, the details of God's work in these regions are recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 and following, if you'd like to read that. Yet during this time, Paul was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judah, which were in Christ. So even during these three years, there's no communication. He's not receiving any kind of a message, any kind of a so-called gospel from these people. It had come by revelation of Jesus Christ. All that those churches knew about this independent apostle was that they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. You see, Paul's life had been radically transformed by the grace of God in Christ. Once a man opposed to the gospel of God's grace is now preaching that gospel that he once tried to destroy. Paul had been radically transformed again by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was set free from the demand to fulfill the law in order to appease God. For Christ is the fulfillment of the law. For those whom he persecuted, they were now his kindred. 
Those whom he tried to kill were his co-workers. They were brethren. They had communion in this gospel of Jesus Christ. And verse 24 says, they were glorifying God because of me. They were not glorifying Paul. They were glorifying what God had done in his life. And may we do the same when we see God at work in a person's life. We see a radically transformed life by the power of God. May we glorify God. This is the work of God. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. It's been said as great as the miracle of creation, ex nihilio, out of nothing. How great, how much greater to take a corrupt, sinful man and transform that man into a new creation in Christ Jesus. They were glorifying God because of me, he writes. You see, salvation is unto the glory of God. It's not to glorify us. It's to glorify the one who saves, the one who sent his son, who lived that perfect, sinless life, who died on the cross and bore our sins. It's to glorify him. Salvation is unto the glory of God. May we never forget it. Romans 9, Paul writes in verse 22 and following, And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also among Gentiles. That's as, exactly what God has done in Christ, providing salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to those who were vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, pouring out grace upon grace upon sinful people. That's the work of God in Christ. That's the glory of God. He's glorified in that salvation. Here's the overall point to reject Paul's teaching is to reject God himself. Neither the testimony of Paul nor of the apostles allows any other other conclusion. Excuse me. So not only was Paul sent by God preaching the gospel of God, the revelation of the saving Messiah, but this salvation is by grace and grace alone. You cannot add anything to it. To add anything to it is to corrupt it. And Paul announces anathema on anyone who does that. This salvation is by grace. God has provided. We do not deserve it, do we? We cannot earn it. It doesn't matter how good you might be at keeping the law. You cannot earn this salvation for Christ is our salvation. To add anything to it is to reject the Savior. 
is to reject the amazing grace of God. Titus 3 says this, verse 4 and following. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by this whole, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is a work of God. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. You receive it through faith. And even that faith is a gift from God. It is granted to you by God. You cannot muster it up. You cannot. Faith is a gift from God. Based on a number of passages. And therefore, we have communion with God. Through Jesus Christ, by his grace, through faith. The Greek word communion, koinonia, means fellowship, sharing, participation, communion, to have in common. You see, we have this in common as born-again believers. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us, his children. Jesus said this in John chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. But it's in the context of this verse, back in verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You see, we partake of him as we come to him in faith. That's what happened when we were born again. When we were regenerated, we came to him in faith. We believed upon him. We trusted in him. If you have come to Christ in faith, you have the life of God in you. You are in communion with him. And we have this in common as a body this morning. This is communion, communion with God. But we commune with one another. We participate. We have this in common with one another. This salvation in Christ, in Christ alone, by his grace, simply through faith. So this morning, we remember the Lord's death with unleavened bread and wine. Unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless sinless body that was broken. It's through his body that we enter, just like the veil in the temple that pictured his body. We enter into the very presence of God through him. We enter dressed in his righteousness. That life, that perfect life, that righteous life that Jesus Christ lived is placed, imputed to us so that when we enter before him through faith, we enter without guilt, without sin, 
wearing the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, those white garments were cleansed. The wine represents the blood of Christ that washes away sin. And I often like to look at it this way. The bitterness of the wine represents the judgment of God. We see that in Scripture. But the sweetness of the wine represents God's abundant blessings. So I think of it this way. Jesus Christ took the wrath that I deserve that I might have his abundant blessings. And so that's what the wine reminds me of, that he died for me that I might be blessed. But this is for believers. Communion is an important part of our service here at Cornerstone. We as in the New Testament, celebrated on a weekly basis. It's not a ritual. It is communion with God, communion with one another, remembering the Lord's death till he comes, looking ahead to the day that we will partake with him in glory. So if you're a child of God, you don't have to be a member here. But if you are truly born again, you're welcome to partake with us. If not, Please let it pass you by and remember what Christ has done. You've heard the gospel this morning. Contemplate it, what Christ has done, that you might be born again. If you're a Christian, we must not partake in an unworthy manner. We must deal with any sin that stands between us and a right relationship with God. We must have our hearts focused upon Christ and not be distracted by the things of the world, by anything that comes between us and him, whether it's sin or just distraction. I challenge you. We're going to have a a few moments of silent prayer, and I challenge you to pray and prepare your heart. If you're born again, prepare your heart and then partake. If you're not willing to prepare your heart, if you're not willing to deal with anything in your heart that should not be there, then don't partake. But the Bible says to examine yourself and so let a man eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's the command. Deal with whatever so that you might participate in this worship. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer.